Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Our 2023 healthcare business panel looked at the top threats and opportunities in healthcare right now. The panelists covered the business outlook and deal making recalibration that is taking place in the healthcare industry, the regulatory power of the Biden administration and how they are looking to change healthcare, as well as antitrust issues, drug imports, telemedicine, generative AI, and learnings from COVID 19. Welcome to our first iteration of our Brownstein Healthcare panel at the crossroads of business, law, and policy post-COVID. We had a number of these during COVID, and uh, it's great to see shining faces in person rather than on the screen. I'm Mike King. I used to head the corporate department here at Brownstein, founder of our healthcare practice, and I'm your moderator for the evening. That's enough about me. Uh, Nadim Elshami. Uh, on my left, probably also on my left politically, but uh, Nadim is uh, a veteran, served for 25 years in Congress uh, and most prominently for House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi, uh, negotiated historic legislation and has made all kinds of contributions to our national fabric. Uh, Nadim brings a wealth of experience in addition to running our D.C. office and chairing our government affairs department. Uh, also on my left, uh, no idea politically, because we're all agnostic here, <laughs> give uh, neutral, fair and neutral advice. Uh, Alex Geyer leads the healthcare practice for GLC advisors with 25 years of experience across services, digital health, healthcare IT, medical devices, and life sciences, uh, and deep subject matter expertise in public and private credit markets. Over the course of his career, he's worked on more than 200 healthcare assignments, and he's going to bring some of that knowledge to bear here this evening. On my right, uh, Dima Tarazi. Dina is our senior policy advisor and counsel uh, with the Brownstein, Brownstein Healthcare Policy Group, uh, provides guidance to healthcare companies and member driven organizations. So, with those introductions out of the way, let's dive in. Yes, indeed, our healthcare system is a bit of a Rube Goldberg-like contraption. So we spend 18% of our GDP, and we get results that are inferior to most of our peer nations, if not all of our peer nations, on important metrics. Um, this contraption is derived from the employer-based concept that Henry Kaiser created when he was running shipyards during World War II and wanted to provide his employees with a benefit. And then post-World War II, the shipyards are winding down. What do we do with all these docks we have involved in this healthcare program? We're going to offer it to the general public. And unions jumped right on board and said, yes, this is a great thing. We want it as a union for our people in the union. And thus the employer-based healthcare system that we have here today. Uh, the Rube Goldberg aspects of it, uh, notwithstanding, we've tried to reform it over the years. And we've even got portions of our healthcare system that are derived from the Civil War. Uh, yep, we've got regulatory aspects like the False Claims Act that tie to war profiteering during the Civil War. So, uh, what can we do with this Rube Goldberg like experiment? 
if a committee of healthcare experts, not that we are that, but if a committee of healthcare experts came together and invented a whole new system, uh, well, we saw it with the Affordable Care Act. A tremendous amount of earth-shaking healthcare reform in this country, unprecedented in nature, uh, and yet it was challenged in the Supreme Court repeatedly. It's what we have in the U.S. today. Uh, it's the law of the land, and I suspect that every panelist is going to agree that it's not going anywhere. So repeal and replace, remember that phrase, despite the incredibly robust campaign dialogue already underway, I haven't once heard the phrase repeal and replace. So the Affordable Care Act is now the law of the land and is very popular and accepted. So although the Affordable Care Act expanded coverage, and happy to hear different opinions on the panel, it did not guarantee access. And there is an ocean of difference between coverage and access. And even myself, with whatever resources I could bring to bear, I cannot get a specialist appointment for my son for a certain need for three or four months. Um, and, and that's with all the privileges and advantages that we enjoy. One prominent example is dentistry. So there are a number of states that are starting to get it, that uh, dentistry is important, that folks can have adverse health outcomes uh, that stem from not taking care of their teeth. And yet, uh, Medicaid, while it may be expanded to provide theoretical access to dentistry, there are not a sufficient number of dentists that take Medicaid. So congratulations on your coverage, but you can't get an appointment, you can't get access. What we have looming in front of us, and this is the hard part, we're going to hopefully get to some optimistic parts, but a demographic catastrophe in terms of health care in this country. We have baby boomers who are retiring. You know, it's their time, it's their turn, and they're starting to have health care needs. At the same time, we have physicians who really took it on the chin, and healthcare professionals fought hard to get us through COVID-19, but the rate of burnout is incredibly high. And so at the very time when demographically we need more physicians, more nurse practitioners, more of everything in healthcare, we've got people who are burned out, leaving the field, or who themselves are getting ready to retire. Extremely challenging. Uh, and what we've learned from the notion of coverage without access is that sometimes when folks have to get healthcare and are forced to wait, they probably shouldn't wait. Some of those things can lead to adverse outcomes. A number of different healthcare procedures postponed during COVID. We'll be reading journal articles for years to come. So what's the good news? Well, in spite of all of this, in the United States, we have the top surgeons, we have the top facilities, we have the top healthcare innovators in the world. And we can take previously infertile couples and help them have the joys of parenthood that parents in the room, we've all been able to partake in uh, through cutting edge IVF technologies. The pharmaceutical industry dominates in terms of drug development with over 150,000 clinical trials since 2008. We have an efficient market for human tissue with just the right tendon or cartilage appearing at just the right time in the operating room including for the Av's own Gabe Landeskog. Uh, so fingers crossed that that works out in about a year's time. So where can we move the needle? 
The triple aim is the holy grail of health care. Population health, obviously, we need to improve. We want to provide patients with a better experience of care, and we want to do all that at a per capita cost that's far more reasonable than what we've been achieving in this country. To tackle some of that, where are the opportunities and challenges? So we've got miracle drugs on tap. We'll talk about some of those tonight, including weight loss drugs, uh, with the promise of potentially reducing comorbidities with uh, high weight. And we can all stand to lose, or I'll speak for myself, at least 10 pounds. So that's exciting. We'll talk about that some more. Telemedicine and its proliferation during COVID-19 and what is its proper role going forward. An exciting development, but like everything uh, in terms of innovation, there's always a challenge. There's always a regulatory need to make sure things are deployed in an appropriate way. Generative artificial intelligence. Need I say more? I mean, there's a tremendous amount of both opportunity and potential risk there. Trends toward consolidation and the regulatory posture toward consolidation. Uh, the FTC and the DOJ have been very active, and we'll talk about that in some detail with a couple of different case studies. Pharmaceuticals and potential for imports from other countries. Uh, the almost seductive promise of low drug prices if we just import away. And Dima's is going to talk about some of that in a little bit. Big data and interoperability in healthcare. care. Uh, the challenge of being able to just have your information follow you to the various doctors that you need in our system. And then lastly, capitated systems, accountable care organizations, and bundled payments, and whether or not they can uh, stay on the winning streak they had during COVID-19. So without further ado, love to hear from first Alex Geyer on the general business environment for healthcare and what you're seeing out there. Alex? Sure. Thanks, Mike. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to join you and your colleagues here tonight. Um, for the general environment for, for healthcare um, and particularly sort of healthcare deal making right now, I would describe as still challenging to be quite honest, especially for new platform-type investments. Healthcare historically has been a very strong performing sector, uh, viewed as kind of an attractive combination of, of defensive and high growth. And if you dial back a couple years to the end of 2021 and a, either a 10- or 20-year look back, only tech performed better uh, as a sector. It was sort of a perfect backdrop of plentiful organic and acquisition growth opportunities and multiple expansion fueled by low interest rates and plentiful debt capital. Um, but the environment's very different now. Financial sponsors still have lots of dry powder, but have obstacles in putting that to work. Financing markets are much more difficult. Start right there. There is liquidity, to be sure, but terms now come with higher rates, lower leverage, and tighter documentation, all of which constrain the upside from financial engineering. Uh, Mike touched on this a little bit earlier, but the operating environment post-COVID is also tougher, you know, especially for patient-facing businesses. Labor costs and, availab and availability issues are rampant um, and an ongoing challenge for a lot of providers who also tend to have limited pricing power. And volume growth in many subsectors uh, remains relatively muted compared to what were pre-COVID norms. Multiples have also compressed, which impacts exit potential, the ability to use exit equity as currency, um, or to extract 
arbitrage from add-on acquisitions. Not to keep piling on the negatives here, but financial distress in the sector is also increasing. You see it in hospitals and health systems, in senior living, and certain um, physician practice roll-ups, especially ones that had exposure to the No Surprises Act. Um, and as you will hear a lot more from my fellow panelists, the regulatory environment is not making things any easier between greater scrutiny on mergers and some general hostility towards private equity involvement in healthcare, especially among Democrats. So in very broad terms, kind of from an investor perspective, the sector is not quite as defensive or high growth these days. Doesn't mean those are totally reversed, not by any means, but it has forced some recalibration of expectations and theses um, uh, for investors. Has also created some openings for well-capitalized strategic buyers, including non-traditional new entrants like Amazon and established players such as Optum and CVS, who continue to sort of blur the lines and break down long-standing barriers. And with that, I'll turn it back to you, Mike. All right. Well, Nadim, Dima, can you guys chat with us a little bit about the political landscape for healthcare? There's a lot going on, and so an overview and your thoughts. Uh, thank you so much, Mike, and, and thanks for having us um, here today. Um, uncertainty in Congress is certainly certainty for the administration, <laughs> right? Congress is at a standstill at the moment, and for obvious reasons, everyone has been following the news. But the administration has not slowed down. They view their ability to legislate through their regulatory powers that they have currently. And Alex hinted to that, FTC, DOJ, um, every opportunity that the administration has has weighed in in the healthcare sector. We've seen it with pharmaceutical companies. Uh, we have seen it with insurance companies. Uh, we have seen it with uh, providers as well. They are deeply involved and they view this as an opportunity to deliver something that many of us thought wasn't going to happen. Going back to when President Biden was elected, many of us felt that this is going to be the President Biden who was a senator, who was open to legislative agreements, but that quickly changed with his nominees to various agencies, to various departments. And their mission was to change healthcare. Secondly, the Republican, four years ago minority, now majority, has moved closer to the Democratic position than they were before. It's more of a populist agenda. So you do see bipartisan opportunities to attack the healthcare sector, to attack consolidation, to attack high prices in the drug industry as well. So things have changed, and I'll let Dima. Yeah, I can um, talk more a little bit about the specifics of what's happening, especially um, what happened in the last kind of weeks or leading up to today. Um, but I also want to just say thank you for having us here today. Um, in a stunning revelation, there was no shutdown, and with that happening, we got a continuing resolution that actually had some health care provisions in it, which was really 
really great to see. Um, some of the provisions that we were help, we were hopeful to see is for, especially for our provider community is really delaying the dish cuts for Medicaid. Those were set to expire at the end of the fiscal year and now have been extended till November 18th. And we're really we are also confident that there is bipartisan interest in in continuing to delay this to ensure that these hospitals are able to provide care for the most underserved populations. Also, um, this is a really big year for reauthorization of many public health programs. In the continuing resolution, we were able to see some um, of these programs reauthorized, um, such as community health funding centers, um, special diabetes program, and some of the teaching hospitals that have graduate medical education to be able to train residents. Um, unfortunately, not all of our programs were reauthorized, and so in this upcoming next couple of months, we're really keeping an eye on reauthorization of some really great public health programs, such as the Pandemic All-Hazardous Program, which really helps our national security to provide um, services and prepare for a public health emergency. We're also looking at funding for PEPFAR, which provides global funding to our to outside countries for HIV and AIDS programming. And as Nadim hinted and talked about, um, we're looking at some of these provisions of consolidation, especially in the um, healthcare space. Um, something that Congress has been very focused on is reforming pharmaceutical benefit managers. And so we are confident, or we are thinking, not confident, but thinking that um, there, those provisions looking at transparency rules will be used as pay-fors to pay for some of these public health programs. And so that's some of the things that we're keeping on an eye on as these are bipartisan um, programs or bipartisan issues, especially when it comes to PBM reforms. So let's jump right into it, mix it up a little bit. Uh, up on the screen, we've got pharmaceutical imports as uh, one potential way we could chip away at that 18% of GDP expenditure with inferior results. So, Deem, I'll go ahead and put you on the spot, uh, because what happens in D.C., as Nadim more than alluded to, is often pursued through regulatory bodies now. If Congress has difficulty legislating, then presidents utilize regulatory bodies to pursue their agenda. So, in terms of weight loss drugs, and like I said, I could lose 10 pounds like many of us could. And the argument goes from the ph pharmaceutical industry that uh, these drugs are going to help with comorbidities like diabetes and ultimately reduce healthcare costs. So some expenditure on the front end for the pharmaceutical, but providing better quality of life, better outcomes, reducing healthcare expenditures on the back end. Of course, the payors are up in arms. They're not excited to pay for these and their position is this is unproven and we're moving too fast. And in fact, you know, this is hocus pocus, snake oil sales type stuff. So where do you come down, Dima, and what's likely to come out of D.C.? Um, so from the regulatory perspective, the Food and Drug Administration has to look more carefully at how how to evaluate weight as a specific issue. It's not currently looked at at clinical trials, so that's one thing the FDA space can really look at how can they reform their clinical trials to include weight as something to look at and to try these drugs on. From the legislative perspective, 
um, right now, um, Medicare does not cover um, some of these weight loss treatments. Um, statutorily, it's not available. And so Congress right now is really trying to pass the Treat and Reduce Obese Act. It is a bipartisan and bicameral bill. And what it would do is would, it would allow Medicare to use, to add, excuse me, to be able to cover these drugs, these anti-obesity drugs, and able to use some behavioral and therapeutic, being able to cover that for some of these patients. So right now, what, how can that get passed or what's the holdup really is the CBO scores all of our bills. And right now, they look at a way of scoring. They don't usually look at the way of using broader savings associated with this. And so they're not able to look at the bigger picture of, oh, okay, so if these individuals use these drugs, maybe they'll be able to cut back on going to the hospital or maybe cut back on going to do some doctor visits due to this correlation of obesity, looking at it now as a chronic disease, being able to prevent you from having maybe type 2 by diabetes, heart disease. And so this is where the conversation is happening. Um, CBO actually today said, we need more research. We would like to know how are these drugs really going to impact impact the healthcare system. And so that's really where I think I can see the problems arising just because there's not as much data. They want to know the research a little bit more before they give it a favorable score so that Congress would be able to pass the bill. J.D.? Well, it's, it took CBO a long time to get to that position. Just historically, uh, when we were attempting to pass the Affordable Care Act, CBO refused to give us any credit for uh, preventive steps that we had in the legislation. They said it was unscorable. So looking at these type of drugs and these types of treatment, treatments as saving cost in the future is absolutely critical going forward, and, and pushing CBO to do that is important. And actually, this is a bipartisan push by both Republicans and Democrats. Well, the interesting segue or dovetail with capitated systems, um, the notion of having folks as a part of a, a system where they get credit for keeping their population healthy rather than for each incident of care, incident of treatment, that the system, I'll pose this to the group, uh, might be better off with uh, growth in accountable care organizations uh, and capitated systems where everyone's incentives are aligned instead of this whole, uh, we don't want to approve this treatment or this payment because it's coming out of our pocket, or at least the fear of that dynamic. Uh, we saw capitated systems really thrive during COVID. And Alex, um, what are your thoughts on this area and where it may go in the future? Sure. Um, I think saw capitated systems thrive during COVID because it was a bit of a perfect storm for them to get paid a fixed amount while their facilities were empty <laughs> um, uh, for at least some period of time. Um, but I do believe it's, it's absolutely critical. Um, there's a lot of ways to structure, you know, the actual eco economics in these agreements, but the whole notion of trying to keep people well versus treating them when they're sick is a, is a paradigm shift that, that has to happen. You know, if we're ever going to sort of really kind of flatten, if not if not break the the cost curve in healthcare and what the trend line is going to be long term, that is a very very foundational piece for it. Other thoughts from the panel on capitated systems? Not not necessarily a political uh, 
groundswell for, for more to occur. They were a part of the Affordable Care Act, uh, Nadim. Yeah, but yeah, but it's it's. But I think you make a, a a very good point. It is about cost into the future, right? And and how do we, you know? And, and Congress is a is 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 you know operates based on rules. And CBO truly is one of the most powerful organizations. Not not mm-hmm. <coughs> Congressional Budget Office. Not not a lot of people have heard of. So in order for something to pass, we've got to figure out how we could actually score that yeah. prevention and as a way to um, get members of both sides to agree to. And, and I would add from the accountable care organization side, I mean, through CMS there is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. So CMMI has been doing these models for years. I think one of the issues, though, is once they do a model, sometimes they don't implement the changes and they go back to start another model. And so there's been multiple different innovation models that have been happening um, over the last five to six years, but the savings aren't matching up due to the changes that are happening. So there's some consistency with some of the accountable care organizations would help kind of keep this continuity of care going as well. Absolutely. So... A lot of folks are interested in recent developments in antitrust, uh, and the regulatory environment has been challenging for the deal community, to say the least. Uh, one thing that occurred was the withdrawal of existing merger guidelines for healthcare transactions. New guidelines are in process, and to put both sides uh, of the healthcare industry and their positions out there. Uh, we had the American Medical Association CEO and EVP James Madara say, it is our strong contention that the agencies must have merger guidelines that protect physicians against health insurer mergers that may substantially lessen competition for the purchase of physician services and that degrade physician working conditions. The other side of that debate, Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, uh, are urging a closer look at consolidation among providers. While some healthcare provider mergers and acquisitions claim to improve efficiencies, improve access and affordability, and or enhance financial sustainability, one motivation is plainly to enhance the provider's ability to extract price increases from insurers. So the two sides of the debate have been joined. Uh, These merger guidelines are being Uh, hotly contested in Washington, D.C. as we speak. Uh, And there are some folks, deal professionals, you know, Alex, I'll throw the ball to you, just want to know what are the rules of the road, right? Take away the guidelines that were in place. Right now there are no guidelines. Uh, You've got insurance is concerned about provider consolidation because that will give theoretical bargaining power. Providers are looking for just that, a little more bargaining power vis-a-vis payors. Alex? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about this from the kind of the sponsor roll-up perspective, but I also think it applies to hospitals and health systems, you know, in, in some respects, too. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that consolidating local and regional share to gain leverage in payer negotiations is, is generally part of the roll-up playbook, especially in specialties that have a higher co- uh, component of, of commercial and private pay. But it's not the only part of the playbook or even the most significant one in terms of value creation. And I think sponsors would argue in response that they're also delivering superior outcomes, better patient engagement, more convenient scheduling, broader service offerings, 
as well as just greater efficiencies generally in the system, especially driving economies of scale. Um, and I will also say, you know, in looking, you know, going, heading, heading back to the sort of the financial distress point earlier, selling to an in or adjacent market competitor, even at a depressed valuation, can be a lifeline for practice groups or distressed hospitals. Um, and so these are often, as you know, kind of those are often the best or most logical buyers. So from an business. antitrust perspective, there's yeah. a uh, failing firm defense that allows for a more friendly antitrust review when a firm is failing. Because if it were to go away, especially in a rural marketplace, patients would be harmed. And I've often posited on behalf of those rural facilities and communities that would be bereft of health care, it should be a flailing firm defense that, yes. you know, failing, it's almost too late. Failing is too late. That's right. Two months cash, right. that hospital is not going to survive. Right. 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 So, I mean, you know, I think all of this, from my perspective, argues for FTC taking a much more balanced and holistic view of healthcare mergers. I'm somewhat like trying to get the CBO to take a more balanced view <laughs> of, um, you know, kind of the economic impacts. Let, let's up the ante, which the FTC did a week and a half ago uh, with their lawsuit against U.S. Anesthesia Partners and their private equity sponsor, Welsh Carson. Hmm. Uh, Asserting the FTC did that uh, multi-year anti-competitive scheme was underway to consolidate anesthesiology practices in Texas by rolling up and monopolizing the market for anesthesiology in Texas, uh, alleging that Welsh Carson created USAP in order to acquire large practices as part of a plan to increase prices and drive profits, uh, and that they're alleged to have also uh, entered into price-setting agreements with independent practices allocating markets. The comment that uh, really grabbed a lot of people's attention from FTC Chair Lena Khan, quote, the FTC will continue to scrutinize and challenge serial acquisitions, roll-ups, and other stealth consolidation schemes that unlawfully undermine fair competition and harm the American public. So, Nadim, maybe you can comment on uh, just how much the FTC is reflecting directives from the White House, perhaps, uh, versus they're off on their own agenda, and what this means for deal making. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good um, issue to to talk about. I think they are reflecting the administration's view um, and the power that they have uh, to be able to um, impact the healthcare market. Look, the FTC has, has taken a lot of, has made a lot of decisions and based on conversations we've had with individuals who have dealt with the FTC, they don't mind if they go to litigation. The end game is not changing, but the um, end game is to make the point if they lose in litigation, that's fine. Um, the administration has made it very clear that uh, standard um, 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 transactions are going to be reviewed. Uh, the FTC is going to weigh in. DOJ is going to weigh in. Uh, and we have seen uh, an increase in those activities in the past year. So, Alex, you're a deal professional. What sort of impact does uh, this quote from FTC Chair Khan have on the market for uh, private equity transactions and roll-up transactions? It's pretty chilling. You know, I mean, it, it's it's a daunting um, kind of construct to throw out there, and it it, it it means I think the 
you'll have a difficult time trying to predict exactly what is the right basis that, that determines like what 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 I what may I or may not be monopolizing from their perspective. So I've done enough antitrust to be mm-hmm. dangerous, uh, <laughs> but I spent time with our expert out of our DC office, Alan Grunis, on uh, both of these developments: the healthcare merger guidelines that are mm-hmm. underway, and this USAP case. And what's challenging is, uh, in in my view, I'm taking off my moderator hat. Uh, this is some very challenging rhetoric, and yet what the FTC. Um, really is after his garden variety elements that whether or not they occurred, you know, these things have to be proven up, of course, but the allegations of price fixing and market allocation, that's nothing new. And and if, in fact, that occurred, that's garden variety antitrust 101. Mm-hmm. But the quote about all roll-ups inviting yes. scrutiny, yes. right, that's your chilling yes. effect. Yeah. Uh, the commentary that... Um, We've heard, you know, the scuttlebutt is that they're really looking for roll-ups that are followed by price increases. So where market power is exerted post-roll-up. That's not in that quote. Right. So the chilling effect is out there. The chilling effect is out there. And again, it's not considering what else may be factoring into that price increase. Better outcomes, better patient engagement, broader service offering, you know, all of those things that, you know, kind of, and yes, they, they, they have consolidated in order to extract negotiating leverage with payers, but it's, it's only part of the equation. It shouldn't be the only determinant. And every private equity mm-hmm. firm ever, I mean, mm-hmm. this whole notion of buying a quote-unquote platform company yeah. and then doing add-on acquisitions, tuck-in acquisitions, or a lot of industry nicknames for mm-hmm. a, a roll-up um, doesn't necessarily equate to those antitrust 101 violations that are alleged to have occurred here. So the phrase that we lawyers all were indoctrinated with in law school is that bad facts make bad law. And this may be one of those instances where not saying any of those things that are alleged occurred, but not every roll-up is like what's been alleged here. No, and I mean, I think they're talking with the the potential collusion with other competitors in the market and price fixing on that basis versus just extracting leverage on your own. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah. Yeah. So, Nadim, how many more uh, active actions by the FTC like this can we expect? Is this a trend line? Oh, it is. It is a trend line. And and the chair has been before um, the House, um, a couple of committees, and um, the Republicans have... um, push back on some of the actions that the FTC has taken. But, you know, the FTC is going to continue to operate under this under this scenario, whether it's um, any type of hospital mergers, any type of, um, you know, acquisitions that could be taking place. They are going to have a, a pretty strong voice going forward. So we're certainly going to save time for Q&A. Uh, but we want to make sure we get to a couple other hot topics. Uh, from a regulatory perspective, we led with drug imports. And this has been you know, teased for years. Like, well, there are cheaper drugs if we just drive across the border to Canada. And there's this institution called the FDA that might have a thing or two to say about that. So, Dima, take us through the drug import concept and whether or not this could be a game changer. So this um, – so this- 
concept or this idea is known also as the most favored nation model. Um, so this is something that the Trump administration really brought up during his time. Um, there was a rule that he actually tried to um, put in place that allowed for the prices of drugs that are reimbursed under Medicare Part B to be no more than the lowest price that is paid by um, countries overseas. And so this would change how um, Medicare would be looking at the drugs, especially when we look at prices overseas and how much lower they are. Um, That rule um, obviously did not go into effect. There were a couple lawsuits that were filed, and then when the Biden administration came in, he um, actually took it down. Um, Essentially, administrations are able to do that. And so this concept has been around um, for a while. Um, It's starting to crop up again a little bit. Um, No, we haven't really seen it a lot on the legislative front. Um, Senator Bernie Sanders um, has hinted at this as a way to look at um, if a drug has gotten support from research agencies like NIH, then the price should be lower. But we're keeping a close eye on this as um, it could crop up again in in the upcoming election, especially if um, Trump is the nominee for the Republican candidate. So we talk about game changers, but there are a lot of players out there investing a lot of money in the system the way it is today, Rube Goldberg contraption or no. And this drug import debate is one. Another example, early on in the Biden administration, there was talk of limiting the amount of time for patents for game-changing drugs. And I felt like, well, gosh, I sat there in law school and learned about patent law in 18 years. And you're investing money in the development of that drug with the quid pro quo of we're going to get a patent for it and we'll, we'll make that money back over mm-hmm. the life of the patent. Uh, I don't believe I've heard much about revoking patent status of late, uh, but what's the, what's the thinking of the panel on the fairness of changing the rules of the game as we're midstream? Uh, commentary on patents? So when it comes to patents, and I will say I'm not an expert on patent law, um, but I think this is something that you're hinting at um, when you look at the inflation Inflation Reduction Act, when it looks at how long a drug has been on the market, why is it such a higher price. You're looking at the differences between drugs. A lot of companies come out and say, well, my drug is a biotechnology or it's a biologic, not a generic. And so there's a lot of conversations when you look at it from that way, how long has it been on the market? And so through that bill, they tried to look at it in that light. And you see that with the 10 drugs that came out for negotiation. Um, You know, I think this way is another way of looking at how can you cut drug costs, and this is one of the ways that the administration took, especially with that bill. Yeah, there is, um, after the um, Inflation Reduction Act passed, um, immediately after there was a bipartisan group of House members, Republicans and Democrats, talking about how we could actually, quote-unquote, change it, Um, and uh, they they haven't had any success um, because they felt it was too onerous. Um, so um, it's not just moving in the direction of the Biden administration and, and many, what many Democrats want, but there is also bipartisan support to try to um, limit what was in the, uh, in the IRA and, and um, you know, may not happen this Congress, but I think if Republicans are in control of, one of, of the House next Congress, I think you could see some changes. So 
let's talk for a minute about the post-COVID environment and whether or not we'll survey the panel we've normalized, quote-unquote, uh, coming out of the COVID-19 crisis and whether any benefits came out of the crisis. Uh, we know the many detriments and lives lost, but uh, what did we learn from that situation? Uh, and I'll, I'll kick it off with the most obvious. We're on the pharmaceutical topic, uh, mRNA, and you know, does this country, does the world get to that technology anytime soon without the prompting, the need to achieve it? And the resources that were thrown behind it, you know, regardless of party, um, it took incredible resources to make that breakthrough happen and bring that to market in record time. No, and I think it, um, it, it also has potential applications in a lot of other um, specialties, uh, and particularly in oncology, that I think are, that, you know, kind of that offers some, some hope for, really trying, for some really very moonshot-type breakthroughs. And cancer care, which, you know, as, as the population continues to age, people live longer, your odds of getting some form of cancer are only going up for each, you know, each, each resident of the United States. So I think, um, I think if the, 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 the sort of acceleration of, and, and commercialization of mRNA technology is absolutely one of the positives come out of COVID. Other positives? Telemedicine? Telemedicine. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You're going to talk about that. Telemedicine, and telemedicine is here to stay. Um, there was a recognition that um, um, it worked during COVID, and uh, we need to identify a way that uh, it becomes part of our healthcare system going forward. Yeah, I would, I would just sort of echo that uh, very much so. I think it's understood for a while that for reaching sort of rural patient bases that there was an application there, but I think it's been broadened a lot through the experience of COVID and not just with seniors and their ongoing care, but behavioral applications in particular. Almost anything where you don't need to have a, like a face-to-face -face or a touch kind of you know, sort of examination uh, uh, situation, it, it has value. And look, in, in, in an environment where employment in the industry is still 10% down <laughs> versus pre-COVID and everybody's trying to find bodies, nurses, physicians, et cetera, it's a way to sort of kind of um, sort of extend the reach of the people that you do have on staff. And I would add that due to telehealth being so integrated during COVID, um, this will be an ongoing conversation, especially next, the second half of this session for Congress, due to some of these temporary services were extended up till, fit, um, till 2024, looking at that telehealth um, using audio only, some of these things will expire, and so they will have to go back to the table to really make these permanent changes. So full disclosure, I published a law review article on the promise of telemedicine mm -hmm. a few months before COVID-19 hit. And all of the obstacles that I identified in the article, all the complaints, concerns about telemedicine, mm -hmm. were all swept away when we were forced to yeah. innovate. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's amazing how quickly that happened when we had no other choice. Mm -hmm. But CMS uh, being concerned about overconsumption of care. That it, and it's a little bit of this Nadim CBO uh, concern that we don't necessarily score preventative care, keeping you out of trouble. And yet that would lead to healthier people, healthier population, fewer costs in the long run. Mm -hmm. But CMS's front-end concern was... People, if they can just hop on with their doctor whenever they want, 
They're going to do it more, and that's going to increase costs. The other big concern being uh, opiates and prescriptions and prescribing without an in-person component. I think the third concern was practice across state lines, and you know that's part of our wonderful American democracy, federalism. federalism. Every state's mm-hmm. got a different system, so that still needs to be figured out. But I think you know Dima's forecast. Stay tuned, and we'll see um, the continuing support for telemedicine and overcoming these obstacles. Yeah. How about generative artificial intelligence? So. Uh, with the Terminator coming out with another iteration this fall, and I don't know how many times we're going to see Arnold in those movies, but uh, I had to educate my 16-year-old son because his classmates will be talking about it. So we watched the original Terminator from 1984, and mm-hmm. they actually predicted a lot of things that are now occurring. Um, and some of those things, though, can be you know, a little bit sinister. So yeah. the Terminator gets on the phone and imitates the speech patterns and mannerisms of the person he's pretending to be uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, just sense of the panel, uh, generative artificial intelligence, is this a positive game changer in healthcare, or is this something to be fearful of? You want me to start? Shoot from the hip. <laughs> Arnold did. Yeah, I think I, I look. I think it's. I think it. I think it can be. It certainly can be positive. Um, you know, look uh, areas like sort of diagnostics in terms of both the, the the speed and the precision of diagnoses. I think AI has the potential to to be you know, profoundly impactful for that. A lot of research and development um, as well. You know, kind of the ability to kind of rapidly reference all sorts of you know, and cross reference different sort of um, you know precedents and, and uh, specimens that have been, you know, kind of reviewed before, uh, as well as sort of patient data. You know, can, can payers use it on a population basis to, to finally kind of drill down to at least some limited amount of standardizing care? You know, if you talk about lowering costs in healthcare longer term, too, sort of extent that we can, you know, try to standardize certain types of things in the healthcare delivery system, I think that would be beneficial as well, so... The applications are incredible. Mm-hmm. The dangers are true, mm-hmm. and what we don't know about it is quite a bit. So we're not, I don't think we're ready to fully embrace it yet, but it is here to stay. Yeah, I, I would agree with Nadim's comments that it is heading in this direction. Um, Congress is taking a look at it as well, especially in the healthcare space. You see activity on both sides of the aisle trying to see what they can do and how will this help standardize kind of the way you receive your healthcare. It's, it's, it's coming. Um, however we tackle it, though, is I think still a little unknown. So the concern, as always, is that Congress will figure this out and regulate it after you know, <laughs> closing the barn door after all the animals are out. Um, what's the forecast in terms of the regulatory environment and, and the savvy um, versus the industry players themselves saying, hey, this should be the last version for now because we need to tap the brakes and figure this out more. Well, a true area of bipartisanship in Congress is no one understands AI. <laughs> <laughs> um, but credit goes to uh, Leader Schumer, Senator Young, for pulling together a group of members, um, a group of senators, to discuss this. They have brought in 
um, those who understand this better than anyone. Um, and they're continuing to operate in this bipartisan manner in order to get to some guardrails guard around AI, but mostly focus on the defense side. Um, however, they're not near a piece of legislation yet because they have to educate both the Democratic caucus and the Republican conference. Mm -hmm. On the House side, it was similar as well between former Speaker McCarthy and Leader Jeffries. They began to have these discussions. They were going to name a task force on AI as well. But um, look, if any, anyone tells you that Congress is going to pass a bill in the next six months on AI, I don't think they've been watching. <laughs> Yeah, and I would also say, in addition to both Senator Schumer and Young, um, Senator Cassidy, who is on the Senate Help Committee, has also taken an interest into this, and he's starting to get feedback from stakeholders. Um, I think another conversation that I've been a little bit following around AI is whether or not it should start on a state level. So should the states look at it a little bit more closely before the federal jump is, jumps in? So that's always the conversation of federalism is... We, we joked about a little bit earlier, so that could also come into play as well as Congress starts to grapple with these issues as well. So AI is not going to replace our doctors anytime soon, but taking on that demographic challenge that we have looming of not enough physicians, nurse practitioners, everyone up and down the system, AI could potentially help leverage the talent and the people that we have. Broad consensus there. All right. <laughs> so how about big data and interoperability of data within the system? We've got a number of our privacy attorneys uh, here in the audience. Uh, Alex, you've, you've worked in healthcare technology and the health tech space. Uh, how big a deal would it be if you know, one were able to walk into any healthcare institution and access a common set of their healthcare data? Uh, it would be game-changing. Absolutely. So in my Mr. Smith goes to Washington way, what's, what's stopping us? Put so you all politics. on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> also the conversation of um, standard, standardizing how you receive the data. So there's a lot of conversation of do you use one method over the other? Um, how does one provider send it to another? What happens if those systems aren't talking to each other? So there is this conversation right now about the standardize of interoperability as well. And, and there is a um, um, couple of innovative companies that have partnered with health systems where you have the where they have your data, all your healthcare data. You have it also on your phone on an app. Um, any doctor in that system has access to that data, but it's not. But that is not fully operational across, you know, the 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 healthcare spectrum. So it's 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 getting there, but it's going to take some time. So I, I've got any number of sports injuries, and you know, if it weren't for them, I'd be in the baseball playoffs right now. I'm sure, but um, at least that's my story. I'm sticking to it. I'm going to probably need some tissue in my knee one of these days, and I am sure I'll be made to get new MRIs, and you see a different doctor, they want you to get their own person's MRI. Um, so the vast amount of expenditure in the system, if we could just stream, just 
in air quotes, just streamline our data and own our own healthcare data holds great promise from an idealistic standpoint. On the other hand, got a letter in the mail the other day about my information had been breached and look out and you better go use this experience subscription because you've been compromised. Uh, and so I, I think the, the twin opportunity and threat around having that amount of data available, freely transferable, there are bad people out there who are looking to intercept that data and do things with it, and it'll need to be regulated. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's the challenge of building the, the right guardrails for that um, is, is, a, is a huge one. No doubt. Well, uh, any other wins coming out of COVID-19? I'd say, you know, maybe it's related a little bit to, uh, to telemedicine, but remote patient monitoring, mm-hmm. you know, and, and sort of enhanced possibilities for home care generally, I think, are things that, um, that were positives coming out of COVID as well. So, and some momentum for captated systems, mm-hmm. you know, although, as you astutely pointed out, <laughs> you, know, you make more money when people are cooped up at home the whole time. Um, but some validation, nonetheless, and a certain amount of market moving in that direction. Certainly, yep. Also, I mean, um, a big thing is taking a closer look at our supply chain. I mean, we saw the bottleneck during COVID, so that is something else that, I mean, opened the door about our strategic strategic national stockpile. How do we have all these things on hand? And so I think that's also a conversation that's been um, had as well. So the system having to respond to a crisis, having to flex those muscles, hopefully learn a thing or two and be stronger, heaven forbid the next one. Yep. Yep, for sure. But unfortunately, our Congress and our administration only operate in crises, and we have to change that. Certainly. So we're coming to that point where... Uh, I think we can open up for some audience questions, and you know, we'll do our best to field those uh, with full disclosure. We're not expert in everything in this Rube Goldberg system of ours. So uh, please do join in. Any questions from the audience? I can keep going. Yes. So the, the, the scrutiny around the FTC and the statements that came out around USAP and all that, it makes sense from the tuck-in platform mentality, but is, is there any kind of scrutiny on the vertical integration of payer-provider optimum-level care in the same thing, or is that a separate discussion? I thought you'd never ask. So uh, that, that's my question exactly, having done just enough antitrust. Um, conversations there, conversations about horizontal integration on the payer side, uh, and, and the notion of the healthcare merger guidelines likely trending toward greater scrutiny on practice roll-ups, and then the USAP case as a manifestation of that position that we're likely to see codified in the merger guidelines, and the quotes from the practice side of the world from the AMA, hey, you know, we need leverage. You know, these payers, they're behemoths. So what's wrong with a little bit of leverage? And I think the philosophy, Nadim, you know, check me on this, might be, hey, you know what? Um, the payers are, are where they are. Like, you guys don't get to roll up solely to gain leverage to get big like they are. I think that's, that's exactly right. And, 
like I said, we're going to see a lot more of this, a lot more, you know, this, this in, in Congress, in some ways, in some instances, has actually followed the FTC chair's decisions and um, have weighed in, and that carries a lot of water with her. So the question was originally on vertical integration, and I took it in the direction of payor size versus practice consolidation size. The notion of vertical integration, so if you imagine your supply chain and and acquiring everyone in your vertical chain, that's the, the antitrust lingo that is being referenced here versus horizontal, just getting bigger in your lane that you play in. And if you vertically integrate and all of your elements in your supply chain are one, does that pose an antitrust problem? And the notion of payors acquiring practices, and there are some out there that are heading that direction and others that are scrambling to catch up, uh, does that give too much power? And the antitrust analysis will be, is this pro-consumer or is this causing consumer harm? And what happens with pricing in the wake of that? The argument will be, and utilizing the notion of capitated systems, well, if we bring this whole system together in one place, then and only then, do we have the ability to drive better outcomes, the triple aim, at lower cost? Uh, because until then, we're, we're in this argument with people and losing money on either side and everybody's worried about getting theirs you know the counter argument to that being well gosh but now we have the fox guarding the hen house so if everything's in one pot um, it's too late to unscramble that omelet if they raise prices after that alex no i think that's i think that's fair you know i think from optim's perspective you know what they try to sell externally anyway is this gives them the opportunity to ultimately drive costs lower and experiment with value-based arrangements in a lot of the specialties they've acquired, you know, by example, or in their ASCs. Um, that, uh, and I think as long as they can find a way to demonstrate that, I think they'll probably be able to keep the regulators at bay. And, and like you said, and it's not disadvantaging consumers in any way. So just so we're all singing from the same sheet of music, the capitated system, when a payor says to a group of providers, we'll give you this set amount per live, you know, per person, and that's what you get for the year. And there's the incentive to keep that person healthy because they have fewer incidences of care. And a lot of cynical folks would say, well, that's just HMOs, you know, health maintenance organizations from the early 90s, old wine in a new bottle. The health tech folks, you know, that Alex has worked with quite a bit would say, now we have the ability to measure that we didn't have in the early 90s. And so somebody who's just trying to deny, deny, deny care, that's not going to work out because we're tracking your population. But the negotiation is, how much do you pay per live? And gosh, wouldn't it be better for the capitated providers to cherry pick the healthy populations? And these things create tension in the system. So to Alex's point, the extent vertical integration occurs, the argument is now we're all on the same team. And we're just concerned about keeping the population healthy. Keeping them out of the hospital. Because yeah. yeah. the ER, we all know, is the worst place to seek primary care. And I think the Affordable Care Act made, made some progress in that regard. But 
it's still, you know, my kids always have incidents of health care on holidays and weekends, yeah. and you inevitably end up there from time to time, and that is a tough place to seek health care. Yes? So how do you think um, all of this would play with states like Colorado that are exploring a state option? So, and Dima and Nadim are not necessarily up on Colorado uh, initiatives, but the notion of um, any kind of a state going it alone on uh, some somewhere down the line on having a state system, you know, something closer to a capitated statewide system. Uh, I have my own opinion, but I'll defer to others first. I think it's hard to do it in a vacuum. We would have to close our borders was the comment. And right, because health care occurs all over our wonderful 50 states, and it would be difficult to have a, a, a lot system. of metropolitan areas cross, you know, state lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, um, I also think with a state option, if it's just one state, it'd be interesting how the federal programs would then interact with the state. Because if you're having more Medicare population, bigger Medicaid population, how does that counteract with how the federal government structure is done, it might be a little bit more difficult because you may not have those reimbursement rates coming through because then CMS is going to have to look at it in a whole different light. To boldly take it head on, the slogan repeal and replace, we hit that one earlier this evening. Another slogan was Medicare for all. And all of these things grossly oversimplify the Rube Goldberg contraption that our healthcare system is. Mm-hmm. If we truly did Medicare for all, the Medicare that folks know and love, that the pushback on that by some constituencies during that particular campaign was, I want to get the government out of my Medicare. You get the irony in that comment, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. But if truly Medicare were made available to all, the cost shift that occurs and sitting in healthcare company boardrooms, it's a real thing. You know, there there is a factual cost shift. So the private pay side of the house to some extent subsidizes the government pay where there are numbers being force fed that they won't reimburse more than X. So so if you take away the private pay theoretically immediately and go to Medicare for all, where's that money gonna come from? Yeah. And I think it's also from the you know, sort of the consumer experience. If you look at what's going on, the people who are aging into the Medicare program these days, now seven, seven or eight out of ten are choosing to private Medicare Advantage plans, mm-hmm. not the government fee-for-service system, because the better responsiveness, they're used to dealing with a commercial insurer. It's much more comfortable for them. And the growth in Medicare Advantage is itself – you know, probably another topic and, yeah. you know, net, net positive or challenge. Yeah, yeah and, and it's interesting, though, that you mentioned Medicare Advantage because the administration has begun to take a look at some of these plans and some of the insurers who offer them. And, and, uh, and, and the issue for the administration is that um, uh, seniors are being um, offered the Medicare Advantage plans for services that they don't need. Um, and that is uh, um, it's going to continue from HHS for a bit of time. And, and um, actually, for some um, of the clients we represent in Washington, D.C., they've seen, they, they have seen a uh, flat growth in Medicare Advantage 
uh, over the past two years. Other questions? Bring it on. I don't think we've ducked any of them so far. Yes. Yeah, the question for the benefit of everyone, uh, the notion of retail primary care, uh, primary care docs showing up in your large grocery store. Minute clinic. Yeah. Uh, Pop-up clinics everywhere. It reminds me of the Onion had an article, and the headline was, New Starbucks opens in bathroom of existing Starbucks. <laughs> so is that where we're going with primary care is your concern? And the solution in some states that are certificate of need states, they have a state level speed bump built in. And having done healthcare mm -hmm. projects in con states, uh, it is very challenging to get through that process. It's very rigorous. And so that's to use the state petri dish of different states dealing with problems different ways a certificate of need process as a speed bump um, is something that states without that might consider that's uh, heresy for you know folks that are looking to do business in that way and claim they're going to do it better faster smarter cheaper uh, but that that's the answer to your question yeah I, I i think the one to actually watch is amazon and one medical and, um, you know, they, in one medical, you kind of began as sort of an urgent care platform, but they are trying to build it out as a kind of primary care on steroids type of business where your primary care doc can do much more than, you know, traditionally your, your son doesn't have to wait four weeks to get an appointment at a specialist. Like, you know, kind of the idea is to be able to try to keep things as much under one roof as possible. Now there's been there's a primary there's a shortage of primary care docs uh, in this country now, and so there'll need to be a pipeline of you know kind of new folks coming in to to sort of build this out. But I think that's something that's potentially game changing in, in, in delivery system. Yeah. And I mean, adding it on to the delivery system, it, you can look at it from if you have these in places where rural America may may like those systems in place for them because for them driving two hours to get to the nearest hospital or nearest clinic to help them out this might be the better option for them because then their doctor is right there they're able to see them they're able to maybe answer some of their questions without having to get in the car and drive you know x amount of hours to get to see a doctor well, and one of my all-time favorite developments was uh, Dispatch Health, a former client of Brownstein's. And, uh, you know, my son seemed to be a concussion magnet for a couple years there. And you have to go through the test. You have to go through the protocols. But it's Sunday afternoon. We're back from a ski trip and come to your home and provide you all the same things that you wait in the ER for. So, you know, there are innovative models and approaches like that. Uh, that, you know, at the end of the day, um, that, that's not just a money grab. That's a convenience to the patient. Yeah. All right. So closing comments from the panelists. Uh, interesting times, interesting juncture <laughs> right now. Um, you know, I think the, we talked a lot about, you know, sort of kind of the FTC and DOJ tonight and, and, and sort of, Kind of aggressive actions that they are taking, and I think that you know they're 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 definitely impacting the the healthcare deal making environment. I think at some point they'll normalize. We'll see if there's any real fire versus smoke on some of these, and I expect a lot of this stuff will get challenged in court. 
in particular, you know, the merger situations or loss or, or suits, you know, that and the FTC may wind up losing a lot of them. I don't think their track record on things that they've challenged so far has been that great, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to slow them down. But I think it, it may it, it may portend at some point in a, a, a more normal healthcare deal environment if there's something of a paper tiger at the end of the day. So uh, I'll counter Alex's invocation of the Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times, <laughs> with uh, the phrase proceed with caution. Yeah. So uh, utilize your advisors, uh, get people involved early and often because uh, the FTC stance is very aggressive. And yet, uh, you know, if, if in fact some of those allegations occurred, you know, those are tough things from a basic antitrust perspective. Mm-hmm. They may engender further scrutiny on all roll-ups, and uh, folks should proceed with caution and, and get advice and get help. Um, you know, I'm looking to see what could actually pass in the healthcare space over the next year in this environment in Congress and get signed by the president. One issue we haven't talked about is mental health. Um, there has been um, discussions by both the House and the Senate on how to approach this issue, um, and there's been some draft legislation introduced. So, um, you know, one of the uh, you know issues that was raised during COVID is is mental health has has really become a nationwide pandemic. So there could be an opportunity for Congress to come together on on a piece of legislation around mental health. I would say also um, there's a lot of, as we've talked about innovation, there's a lot of innovation when it comes to therapeutic care for a lot of rare diseases. You saw the conversation around um, Alzheimer's, the clinical trials, but really it stems down to, you know, how does FDA and CMS somewhat be able to move those therapies to actually have patients to be able to have access to these cares. So I think once we start getting into those spaces, especially also in gene therapy, it's going to be a huge conversation, making sure that these are rare chronic diseases. How is it going to actually go from clinical trial stage to get to the patients? All right. Well, uh, we appreciate everyone's thoughts, questions, uh, time and energy and to try and close on an idealistic note, I think we did uh, make some strides. We learned some lessons from COVID, some innovations, and uh, some of these items that were up on the screen this evening, some of these different innovations, yes, they pose challenges, but uh, if proper guardrails are in place, we can chip away at that 18% of GDP. We can improve the results on the triple aim, and uh, many of the healthcare professionals in this room can be a part of that. So. Thank you very much, and we appreciate you being here. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.